Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Dr. Zach. How are you today? Hi, Haidar. Uh, yeah, I'm doing fine today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. It's my um, day off today, so it's always nice when you have no, you know, proper responsibilities uh and just have you know easier responsibilities and when I say easier it means um family commitments kids commitments shopping and you know all of those other stuff which for some people I guess is is not so easy but it sounds uh, for, like a great opportunity to to get on with making some podcasts as well exactly exactly here I am speaking to you and you know it, it it's um it's an interesting one, this, because we're kind of combining two podcasts together and it's always a bit of a, a risk doing that because, you know, we, we, we have different perspectives and different outlooks and different listeners and, and different genres and sort of, you know, stuff like that. So, so t- tell, us about, tell us about your podcast and, and tell us what got you started. Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so my podcast is called Healthy Discussions. And um, I started that last year when I was doing a project with the Healthcare Leadership Academy. They are an organization that are kind of trying to support early career uh, clinicians to try and get some leadership skills, trying to up-level them. And uh, I was a big fan of the Sam Harris podcast, not because I agree with Sam Harris's views on a lot of things, but um, his style of doing the podcast where you know, people were talking about ideas. They were really trying to get to the truth of what was behind an issue. And that sounded to me like something I'd love to do. It was right up my street. And and I thought, why not do this for healthcare issues as well? So that's kind of been the, the driving force behind it. And uh, as I as I keep going and gain more experience, I'd really like to get into talking about some other issues as well. So I was really happy when you reached out to me, Haidar. Yes, yes. Um, and and what issues you know were really up your? I mean, I don't know what the Scottish sort of word is for sort of you know uh, getting on your tits, so to speak. You know what what, <laughs> what were your? Well, um, yeah, I'll I'll tell you what it's about. So the the when I was at school, so in Scotland, you have a subject called modern studies, which includes stuff like politics and uh, the justice system. And you know, so you study things like that. And, and I was in a, uh, one of the sort of top private schools in, in Edinburgh. I was very lucky to be able to go there. And we were learning all about the health and wealth inequalities that existed in Scotland. And so I knew then at quite an early age, you know, there's probably some, there's probably a lot of other kids out there that could do just as much as I could with these opportunities, but they don't have them. And when you start work as a junior doctor, you see that every single day. Uh, 
depending on what issues people are coming in with. A lot of the health issues, you know, they're not just health issues in themselves. They're result, they're end results of health and wealth inequalities, uh, education inequalities that have been there for a very long time. And, and I was very keen that in order to justify that privilege that I had, it was very important to me to be able to use that to make the system better for everybody. Um, so that's kind of the, you know, the driving force behind my interest in all of these different issues. Um, it's just trying to think, well, what can I actually do about this to make it better? And is this coming from a like position of, of, of feeling, you know, um, uncomfortable about being in this privileged position? Or were you very comfortable about being there and, you know, it was sort of part and parcel of, of your identity? Mm. Uh, that's a good question. Else? Yeah. Uh, when I was very young, I don't think I questioned it that much. Uh, but as I got older and I became more politically aware, I realised not everybody has these opportunities. And there's definitely some guilt that comes from that. It's I very much am thinking in, in my mind, well, I need to do something today. You know, I need to use these opportunities that I've got because if I don't, then I'm wasting them. Uh, that's definitely something which is quite prominent in, in my thinking. Yeah, I mean, I felt very guilty about everything, really. I mean, sort of uh, because I felt so, you know, coming from Iraq and, you know, being a refugee here and then sort of going from, from you know, starting from scratch and then working through the whole um, <clears throat> lower socioeconomic class and then sort of working your way up into the middle class I always have had that sense of guilt <laughs> non-stop you know within me and and you know that that kind of get me driven so to speak and sort of really single-mindedness and and and, and, and sort of laser focused into sort of uh, climbing up the social uh, hierarchy um, and it's a powerful drive you know, there's no denying it. You know, it's a powerful drive. And, you know, you've got parent pressure and, you know, coming from the Middle East, you know, Iraq, you've got sort of driving parents that are sort of, you know, the moment you have a bit of a rest, you know, you're kind of, you know, they take their whips out and, and give you a good beating to sort of get back on the horse. Yeah, so um, you can either be a doctor or you can be an engineer. Those are the those are the two options. Yeah, or 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 just don't bother sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so that was that sort of constant drive there. So you know, um, guilt and there wasn't much shame. There. I mean, the shame came along when you didn't actually, you know, get A's or A stars. You know, that kind of oh my god, I've let my, you know, my whole a uh, clan and sort of culture and 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 you know to a certain extent religion down and so on. So, you know, that was constantly at the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and is, is that guilt about, you know, the, so when when you left uh, Iraq or your family left Iraq, is it guilt about the people who are, are left behind there? Mm, mm, mm. I'm yeah, just thinking I'm, about the, the brain drain as well. You know, lots of people leave uh, Middle Eastern countries and, oh, I mean it, and I end mean up not going back. It's so stark. It's so stark in the sense that, I mean, I I, I remember we met up with my grandmother and, literally it was like my my grandmother sort of taking my mum through a guilt trip about about why she left Iraq and it it, it was quite harrowing actually it was quite harrowing because you know seeing my mum you know essentially being broken down psychologically 
um you know by by my grandmother about you know why did she leave and we needed you and and you know at the same time she couldn't stay because you know uh, i mean you know my background is 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 that um my family's a very religious uh, family and involved in politics and saddam executed 54 members of our family because of because of the religious faith uh uh you know that they professed so physically we can, falling. You, you know so physically we can actually stay there but yet mm. there's still that kind of narrative that oh you sort of left us and you know you left us in the lurch and you know you you know you're the lucky ones to get out so you know there were there was constantly that 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 sort of narrative being driven at us mm -hmm. so you know you you had to do something of your life here uh, no you know no matter how difficult it was and sort of how um you know psychologically mm -hmm. you know conflict you know there's there's a lot of intrapsychic conflict going on there you know and at the same token you're in a society where you know it's not about hard work you know it's about so-called success without actually doing any work you know that's mm -hmm. the kind of general society narrative that the media drives at you constantly it's like well you know you can take all these shortcuts and here you are you're you're, you're a billionaire and um and you know it, we're good at being lazy i think that's the underlying <laughs> curse for human beings is it's 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 easier to be lazy than i, you know, I sympathize with that uh, point of view a lot so i think uh especially about being here and that being psychologically difficult i mean my experience of uh you know i, I also come uh not necessarily from like there's different religions in my family hmm. um you know my my dad's muslim uh, my mum's not religious come from a mixed mixed uh, heritage uh, family but very much uh, you know i'm seeing other people in the muslim community really finding it difficult to reconcile that their parents desire to keep in touch with their home culture and their own desire to kind of forge a path through uh, living in, in modern Britain and trying to balance that up against each other. I think it's been a little bit easier for me because I came from a mixed um, mixed race family. You know, there it's been a little bit easier for me to, or it's not been such a clash between uh, work and home. But for people who, who it is a big clash, I think that is really difficult. And, and actually, they don't get a lot of help from community leaders. Uh, they don't get a lot of help from you know, the, the quality of the thinking within the Muslim community about how to reconcile those two things isn't very good at the moment. Um, I think that's starting to change. But uh, yeah, very, very difficult. Yeah, I think, you know, people, I mean, yeah, I, mean I don't know, you know, blow my own trumpet but you know pe pe people have sort of gone through these experiences and, and and can make some sense of it and sort of some kind of resolution within this intrapsychic conflict I think that's important and you know having dialogue with, with with other people of other experiences and sort of other walks of life and other philosophies and other uh, ways of thinking I, I think you know that's the start of understanding you know where the solution is and you know it is about dialogue you know and and I remember when I sort of I mean what 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 I did is is I actually I went back to the fire you know I went you know I left the N NHS for a period of time and then I went back 
to Iraq to do to do um, ophthalmology there. And then what, I realized what was that like? That must have been eye opening. It was crazy. Pardon the pun. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fucking crazy. It was um, um, it was like going back to the sort of mi- middle ages, really. You know, you know, you turned into some kind of demigod and you know, kind of a lord, Lord of the Rings kind of person. And you got all these people, like, you know, the saviors come back from from the <laughs> west. It, it was it was it was crazy. It was sort of uh, you know quite a surreal experience. But you know, I mean, I wasn't you know I wasn't mature enough in my in myself to know to know me and sort of how to deal with these you know uh, with these difficulties. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. No, I mean. I, I don't know. I didn't do a good job. I mean, I wrote about it. I mean, you know, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I did with the book. So, you know, trying, trying to figure out the way of reconciling the two, but I mean, look, physically I did a good job, you know, people got treated mm-hmm. and, you know, eyes got treated and, you know, I certainly reduced suffering for a lot of people there. Um, mm-hmm. But I was going through a lot of suffering because, you know, I realized that, um, I mean, the, the need outweighs far more of what you can actually do. And uh, in, in one of my podcasts, I was speaking to Philippa Whitford, who's one of the, the Scottish National Party MPs in Westminster. She's yeah. a breast surgeon. Yeah. And she was telling me about her experience going to Palestine, where she was conducting services, um, you know, uh, and there's a huge unmet demand there. And she was her warning was you know don't do this sort of thing and go abroad uh until you've got a level of experience and seniority that you can really deal with this this kind of stuff because it is psychologically tough and if you don't have something to offer if you're still in that learning phase where you're kind of taking in more than you're giving back then you know it's better to wait so that's definitely a a lesson i've taken on board I mean, I don't really totally agree with that. I mean, um, at the you know, if you're if you have a certain degree of self awareness, you know what you, what you can deal with and what you can't deal with. So, and as you said, there's needs of all levels over there. So, you know, if you can diagnose pneumonia, that's good enough. You know, if you can diagnose an ingrown toenail and give antibiotics, that's good enough. So, there's all levels of need there. If you can yeah deal with uh, uh maxillofacial cancers and you know remove half the jaw and sort of say that's good enough so um you're quite right you know there's you know the need is there but you can go there at any time so you know you don't have to be uh, a consultant with with 10 years 20 years 50 years experience you can quite easily go there as a as a you literally finish medical school and you go and work in a community clinic and you'll do just amazingly well and you'll learn so much, which is really important. I, I, I think it's more to do with um, um, the purpose and like the reason why you're there. You know, what what is the ultimate why mm-hmm. as to why you were going there? And the ultimate why for me was to serve my country and to serve my faith um, and to serve my ancestry, so to speak, you know, rather than anything else um and what i what what i realized was that i i needed more maturing uh for myself in the sense that 
um, I didn't know who I was because mm-hmm. I, I, I thought I knew who I was and I was related and, and you know, intimately with, with this faith. Um, but I went there and I realized that I wasn't that, I wasn't into the faith at all. Well, that sounds um, very interesting. That's a very interesting realization. So, uh, let, you know, can we explore that for a bit? Sure. That, you know, what was, what was going on for you there? Well, I guess it was, okay. So I think it was like a narrative that, that I believed from other people. So I, so I created a narrative uh, uh, dependent on other people rather than on myself. So I built a structure that was based on other people, i.e. my parents, my ancestry, and, uh, you know, the faith related to that, um, to that ancestry. Um, so when I went there, I realized that this wasn't good enough. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that this, this narrative that I built was actually not the right thing for me personally because um it wasn't sustaining me so Mm. it was a it was a non-sustaining narrative um and if you built your whole life on this non-sustaining narrative which uh, which essentially is sort of based on ideology and and, you know what what i what i realized that an ideology-based narrative breaks down um, in different so situations this, this map this representation of the world yeah how you think things ought to be and then you go somewhere you go to a different country and you realize that's totally wrong now what do you do exactly exactly so you know i was sort of plunged in you know burnout and and, and sort of existential dread and 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 um existential crisis and um chaos um so i need and what new... was it about being abroad that brought that on for you you know, it sounds like it was a very sort of, um, you know, uh, faith-oriented kind of realization. You know, is it that people who you were uh, sort of associating with they didn't believe in the same way that you believed, and that, you know, that kind of opened your eyes to a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, essentially, it was lies, and and you know, I saw the lies there. But the most important thing is, I was lying to myself. I was saying, "Ah, oh, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. I'll be okay." Yeah. But it wasn't okay. And, you know, it took a, a friend of mine to say, look, you know, there's something wrong with you. Go and get help. And I actually saw a life coach at the time um, for some for some bizarre reason. I don't know why. Um, I got in touch with a, with a Canadian life coach. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, it was like, oh, my God, you know, actually, I don't have to be an eye surgeon. And, oh, my God, I don't I actually have to just believe in this. Uh, in this ideology and oh my god there are sort of other perspectives and 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 other realities and and other Mm -hmm. ideas um and other paradigms and other representations was this you kind of feeling that you you've put all of your life into this professional sort of career and there's no there's no space for anything yeah i mean yeah it was you know i've got this avatar Mm -hmm. which is professional stroke faith-based avatar and I reached a stage in my life where, I, where uh, you know, no, this isn't working anymore. Um, I think there's, I mean, I, you there's know, lots, I mean, since then, I mean, in the same in the yeah, same boat, you know. Yeah, I mean, since then, it, it, it's it's sort of happened a few more times, if you know what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like a, but not as, 
but you know but not as um drastic and dramatic mm-hmm. um because i'd invested so much uh, of myself in this in this thing and i didn't realize that i was i was kidding myself you know i was just whatever putting it off and uh, blaming everything else apart from myself uh you know that's that's what i realized that that um, i was putting the blame on you know tom dick and harry but as long as it's not hider uh, you're okay um so yeah but but you know with, with with that you start sort of chopping and changing and you start doing different things and you know you kind of end up back in the same place really i've kind of ended up but you know uh in the same place you know doing ophthalmology and and you know i've sort of come back full circle you know back to the faith as well but in a sort of different perspective which is a bit weird um and sort of ultimately i've come back to the same purpose which is reducing suffering and and mm-hmm. you know you know that that was my ultimate uh reason you know for life and and purpose in life and you know my my ultimate meaning is to reduce suffering for others so that i can inadvertently and indirectly reduce suffering for myself so i, th- I think um, that's that's very interesting because while you know that's your individual story i think that's happening to lots and lots of people uh, in medicine at the moment and that um you know maybe the specifics aren't the same in terms of the cultural and religious kind of side of things but that sense of not really being sure what the purpose is you can see why that happens in medicine because the way the career structure is set up is that you make sacrifices in the short term uh, and you do that for a period of you know a decade up to 15 years until you have uh, the career progression in the consultant job which by the way you might not actually like because you've not actually done that job you've only been minimally exposed to it and being asked to kind of select what you what you think you want to do at a very early stage before you actually get to do it so I don't think it's surprising that some people get to where they've been told you know this is where everything is going to get better now and they actually find actually I don't enjoy this and um, I think that I, I don't know the statistics on this but I do get the feeling at uh, you know my stage. I some of my peers, you do see the attrition rate. You you know I'm seeing people who are in the first two years of being a doctor, and they are really not enjoying it. They've uh, sacrificed a lot of time, uh, study time, getting this medical degree, and normally for good reasons. And then they find out that actually the actual job is not something that I am a uh, equipped to deal with. Uh, and B, it's not something that I enjoy or want to spend the rest of my life doing. And so they they leave medicine because of those um, reasons. Uh, and I think probably that's the right thing to do, because I think the worst thing that you can do is you realize that something is not aligned with your purpose and you keep doing it anyway uh, because of fear or because of, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean... Uh... I think it's important to, to to be very clear about you know what's the underlying um, narrative or myth of 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 why you do what you do, and I think if you can translate that into everyday living, um, if you can personify that in your actions, 
in what you do um, on a daily basis. I think that's much easier, uh, you know, sort of to carry on, whether it's being a doctor or sort of not being a doctor. But I think, you know, when you're younger, you're, I, it is a cliche, but you are more impulsive and you're more likely to do things that you will regret. Um, mm. And you've got uh, you to know. do, you know, you've got to try things out. And Yeah, 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 um, try things out, de- 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 definitely. But, I mean, the point I'm, I'm trying to make is, um, you know, there's a reason why you studied. There's a reason why you got through medical school. And it must be a very, very important reason for you. And if you can translate that important reason into something that resembles uh, a physician or resembles a a medical doctor, but doesn't necessarily have to resemble the typical, you know, career or pathway that that 95% of uh, physicians do. So there's still a possibility of you, you know, acting out that, that, that underlying reason and that underlying narrative structure that got you there in the first place so you know that's something to think about rather than just you know dumping the uh uh the young junior doctor with with the bathwater. you know yeah so hi i've got a wee theory about this i'm gonna i'm gonna share with you i've not i'm um, spoken about this uh, uh publicly but do, do you know the what three words app what uh, three words yeah, what three words? You know, I don't know. The, yeah, so the the emergency <laughs> services uh, basically because people can't read grid references apparently. So if you're out in the country somewhere and you need an emergency, nine 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 have a very difficult time phoning, uh, like finding out exactly what your location is. Okay. But if you download this app, then what it three words? The world. Yeah, so what three words? And it splits the world up into three by three meter squares. Wow! And it gives them three words. That's that's like a three-word grid reference, and then they can come and find you, you know, immediately. That's a and, lifesaver. And I, it's it's definitely a lifesaver, and it got me thinking. Well, if if you you only need three words, and you can cover the whole planet in three by three meter squares, well, you know, if you want to find your own sense of individual purpose, which is different to everybody else's, all you need are to find what your three words are, wow. and that's you know totally unique uh, purpose that's that drives you and you know for me medicine is definitely one of those things um although there are problems with associated with being a doctor i don't think i would want to leave the health service because of that but i realize that you know once you've got doctor i've still got two other words i can use that's you know that allows me to get in what what am i missing what's what's the rest of my purpose because i know that my skills my interests they're not they don't just stop at at the field of medicine where the boundaries are i've always been someone who's interested a lot more in the social uh structures the institutions the politics uh, even as well as the the data so you know that gives me a little bit of wiggle room if i think about it in that way yeah so i mean i'm I'm sort of extrapolating here so doctor is one word the other one is possibly politics and the third one is possibly data yeah so i think that the third one might be debating 
and uh-huh. uh, maybe this is something I should share with you as well. Because um, when I was when I was at school, um, there was the debating club, and uh, at, at my school they were quite competitive. I, I you know I wasn't uh, one of the best debaters or anything, but um, that ability to because um, the way debating works is you get told what the motion is. You have to you don't get to choose a side. You get given what side you're on, and you've got to come up with a convincing speech within 15 minutes about how you're going to convince everybody else that you're on the right side of that debate and people who are good at that it's it's something that I absolutely admire in people because it, I think it's a skill that can be practiced yeah. it's something that's very useful when you're communicating with people how do you how do you persuade people without coming across like you know you're just you know that you're a know-it-all or something like that yeah an ass, and yeah. yeah and it also gets you to think about problem solving and you know i i've we've said that we're not going to mention the c word um but when when you look at something like that 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 is a problem that needs to be solved and if yeah. you don't have the skills to be able to convince others that your approach is the best we you're not going to get the problem solved and i kind of think that's that's what's happened so um, I've never been a good debater, to, to be honest with you. I've always been um, a good listener. And, um, but, you know, I mean, uh, some people are geniuses in, in, in the sense that's their natural ability. And, you know, I think that, that the good debaters have that natural ability to, to debate and uh, to um, problem solve, as you, as you suggested. Um, what do you think your natural ability is? So, so I've realized, and, and actually there's a parallel here with you, because when you go through difficulty, right, I think you learn stuff about yourself that's really important. Um, so I was doing a research uh, post for the last 12 months and finding it really difficult because I was having to work from home a lot and I, d- I didn't enjoy that. And I realized, so a couple of things that I'm really good at are uh, speaking to patients I really enjoy that I'm very good at getting rapport with the patient and uh, explaining things in a way they understand and smoothing things over when they get angry I'm kind of very good at that and the other thing that I'm good at is uh, you know public speaking so uh, getting up in front of a crowd would totally terrify lots of other people but I actually quite enjoy that now. I still get nervous and depends, you know, what you're going to say and uh, how controversial it is, but it totally doesn't bother me being up on, uh, you know, in front of other people and and saying stuff that you think is important. So um, I would say those are the two skills I'm, I'm quite good at. And, and um, what, what stuff are you pretty shit at? You know, I think, ah, no way. What or... stuff am I rubbish at? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is this is the bit when when you realise, oh, if I can't come up with a good answer like right away, then maybe that means that I'm like really arrogant. <laughs> um no, there's there's plenty of stuff that I'm not good at. Um well I mean one... you know, let's say what are what 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 are things that you want to work on that you think is worth working on and uh it's gonna make a big difference to your to your life. Well, I think the resilience thing, um, definitely. I mean, resilience is a little bit of a debate in itself that's happening amongst uh, 
junior doctors like you know how much of resilience is actually like you need to work on yourself so you can deal with this better and how much is just this is a really rubbish situation and even a normal person would struggle dealing with it but um when i think about it uh i i have a tendency to want to avoid conflict and uh, not want people to be upset with me so uh if it's something that I don't think is very important, I will just sort of cave in to that person. And I've realized that that's not always the right thing to do. Sometimes you do need to kind of stand up and, um, and say, actually, I really don't think we should be doing this uh, and, you know, challenge somebody. So I find that difficult. It's definitely something I need to work on. But um, again, as you get exposed to more difficult situations, you learn about how to do these things better. So, can you no, use an example of, of 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 when that happened recently? Uh, yeah. So um, yeah. So there there's been lots lots of examples, but um, so as when you're a foundation doctor, you have to get feedback from your colleagues, and painful. This is some <laughs> yeah. So this is like a kind of management thing. Every four months, you got to ask all your colleagues, oh, what do you, what do you really think about what, what I'm doing? And then they write stuff anonymously about you and then you go through it with your educational supervisor. So I got okay feedback most of the time. Um, but sometimes you would just get a comment that you're, you're not sure where that's come from. Someone's clearly not very happy with you. Uh, but you, you don't really know why. <laughs> Because, you know, they've not explained it in a way that's like, all right, I can see what I've done. I can correct it next time. They're just kind of having a go at you. Uh, So I'd love that. Actually, I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll be one of those individuals who say you're an absolute asshole. Yeah. (laughs) I'd leave it at that. So, I mean, my initial reaction to that is to get very upset. And uh, and that's not really the the best way to deal with it. You, You have to be professional and you have to make the make the changes but how i ended up responding to that was well i need to be really you know i need to be really sure that i'm not upsetting any of my colleagues after that and in my next placement you know i wouldn't i wouldn't speak up for anything uh because you know you're you're not incentivized to it it's very important that people don't raise concerns about you otherwise you don't progress to the next stage so uh you know i I think that's something which is more generally true of how clinicians are assessed anyway people don't want to be associated with any concerns so they pipe down if anything controversial is happening and that's not always the best thing yeah i mean i was the total opposite i was a real rebel and 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 um you know sort of minor arsonist and uh (laughs) anti-establishment uh junior doctor um and i barely sort of got through the signing off stage mm-hmm. and I must have persuaded them to do so so I mean I've actually totally mellowed out because I used to love conflict I used to just love make everything burn and uh, create the uh, the fire of chaos by I mean I was a sort of you know a mini dragon so to speak fire I everywhere. take it being in conflict it doesn't upset you in the same way that it might upset people like me <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. You know, total psychopath. Um, you know, when you come from a from from a place of conflict, you're, you're kind of used to it. And I guess one of the major reasons why I went to Iraq is because it's such a place of conflict, and there's civil war, and there's guns, and there's explosions going off, and everything. You think to yourself, 
Well, you know, doing a, you know, doing a senior house officer in, in South End is, you kind of fall asleep, mate. It's like, fucking hell. You <laughs> want some solid action. So, yeah, I was a bit too much conflict. So, I, you know, I was the other side, mm-hmm. and now I've totally mellowed out and become a civilized... Did you, did you win your conflicts? Because this is something that, that interests me. Like, you, you don't want to create conflict if there's a better way of doing things, but sometimes if, if you can't, and, no, no, and that's your natural it. state. You know, that's yeah. you're used to that kind of heightened sense of um, emotional uh, volatility and instability because because you revel in it. You know, that's what mm. uh, makes you alive. That's what allows you to to um, hone your skills and and <laughs> and you know become a better rabble rouser uh, and um, rebellious leader um so yeah it, it's it's your natural state you know you're you know you're in a process of flow when that happens you know time goes out uh out the window and and, and were know. there any advantages of being like that i wonder well you it... know you know you get things done you're quite productive um you have a following um you have lots of uh minions with you around you um but yeah, it's all a bit, yeah, you know, destructive, so to speak. But it's fun. Yeah, because it's the, fun. this it's question fun. of like constructive conflict um, interests me because I think that sometimes conflict is necessary, but you want yeah. it to go well, and you don't want to do it unnecessarily. So I'm always interested in hearing about people that have, uh, you know, s- stood their ground or had conflict for the right reasons and actually come out on top in the end. Yeah, look, I mean. I mean, I got my funding uh, for the charity work that we did in Iraq from from the U.S. Army. And I was funding an, an eye clinic in the Shia um, stronghold in southern Iraq. Mm. You know, so so how does that work? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, two contradictions happening at the same time. But at the end of the day, patients got treated. Patients mm. got their eyes uh, um, uh, sight treated. So. The answer to your question is, yes, conflict is very uncomfortable, but then there is a utility behind it because you get shit done. I mean, it doesn't sound very technical, but, you know, that's what happened. Um, So, yes, creating the conflict to allow a new path of uh, um, of result. And um, some people are good at it. um, And I'm one of them. Um, But it but it does burn you out. So. You can't do that for long periods of time. Um, but whenever I needed something done, I'd go into my conflict kind of zone. And you know you'd get what you get pretty quickly because everyone wants to avoid conflict. So, you know, I wasn't the most popular with people. Yeah. I imagine uh, being mellow uh, is more enjoyable for you and all the people that you're working with. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, 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 um, I haven't had a massive rant. I mean, the, the last time I punched someone at work was was um, three years ago. So it's not bad. <laughs> I've done quite well. Uh, it quite sounds well. like you're, you might be uh, needing a recovery program. You know, it's been, it's been three years since I last uh, had a go at someone. <laughs> since the last one I punched someone. But yeah, yeah I mean, look, uh, you know, we... 
we're humans but you know conflict isn't necessary and and um i mean i had a patient the other day a psychotherapy patient and we had a major fallout and i felt really bad and i felt guilty but it was necessary absolutely necessary for you know for for them to to make better strides in in their psychological well-being um i mean you know even horrible people like you know my, myself get 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 upset when we have to go into sort of conflict mm-hmm. mode and sort of horrible mode and um um i mean i'm not totally psychopathic um i mean i guess i was at some stage um but um yeah i mean i'm glad i'm not going through foundation years at the moment i i would have left instantly you know other people sort of commenting about and then you know you've got to step on eggshells you know careful about not stepping on eggshells and oh bloody hell i wouldn't have survived uh long at all so something that i've discovered which is quite nice is that so so i've done my foundation training i'm in core medical training now they, they call it internal medicine but it's basically the old core medical training mm-hmm. and now that i've got that little bit of seniority that does make a difference. I'm being left to make decisions for myself and get to use my own initiative. It's and that is psychologically is much better for for me. It's not like you're at the bottom of the pile and you're just having to cope with all of the demand that's on you. So yeah, I always say to FYs um, that are struggling, you know, it does get better, but you need to be sure that it's it's helpful if you know where you want to end up. And you need to have knowledge about yourself to know where that is, what kind of job is going to be suitable for you, what some what job you're going to do that you're actually going to enjoy. Because uh, something that I've experienced uh, in, in my FYs is that you see people who are consultants in their chosen field and they just look tired, man. They look really tired. Yeah. And, you know, these are people who are at the top of their game. They're in their 50s. They've worked their whole career there nearing retirement and it does make you think twice like actually do I want to end up like that especially if you think that actually I'm not making that much difference on the front line I I perform my function and then I go home but if I could do something with the whole institution then I might be able to affect more lives so you know there's good reasons to stay in medicine but there's, there's good reasons to leave it as well and uh, it all depends on what you individually like yeah yeah i mean you know this this brings us to the so the whole concept around hierarchy i mean you know the 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 higher up you are in the hierarchy the more likely you are to regulate your um uh your nervous system and you know particularly your sort of serotonin levels and sort of what have you and 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 hierarchies are, are are dissipated so there's a constant flow between different hierarchies so it's important for you to be somewhere in a hierarchy where you're quite high up in the hierarchy just to counteract the other hierarchies where you're sort of right at the bottom and it's really really crap and you're going through a lot of um uh emotional instability so you know if you're you know if you are a fy1 um which is really crap um and you know you have no say in actually um uh changing the organization apart from obviously you know destroying it and, and sort of raising it to the ground um be influential in other hierarchies or sort of work your way up in in sort of other hierarchies where you can sort of 
go up really quickly or sort of be in a high position and that counteracts you know the other places where you you know you're you're having difficulties in um so maybe i was in a really high i mean i was in a high hierarchy culturally and religiously and that was counteracting you know other places where I, where, where I was quite low in the hierarchy and mm-hmm. you know you know that's that's one of the best ways to kind of become a bit more resilient is to have lots of other hats that you can use and rely on and and uh, you know allow you to recharge and rejuvenate and um heal so that then you can go back into the uh, battlefield as a um um as a grunt a medical mm-hmm. grunt this is where the idea of social mobility i think is really important because uh definitely when i was growing up there was a a sense uh, or it was the common sense that we were taught which is that people who are at the top of the hierarchy find it much easier for for their children to get to the top of the hierarchy this is this is the concept of privilege some people get to go to nicer schools uh so they're they start much higher up the, the hierarchy but if you have social mobility and it's dependent on well, what are your skills that determines where you should be. Uh, this idea of meritocracy, well, well that's that's better, right? Um, I'm not sure that's quite true anymore, unless you take into account things like social media. So, what I would say to to people that are not enjoying being near the bottom and are thinking about, well, how can I actually uh, climb this? It seems to take a long time to claim the medical hierarchy i would say well there are some things that you can do now uh that would that would help so develop an interest in in something else and spend your free time learning about that because if you develop an extra skill or if you uh you know launch a youtube channel or a podcast uh or you know something that that you're interested in that is going to build extra credibility that's you claiming a sort of different a hierarchy and you're getting a head start on every on everybody else and as a doctor you you have some financial resources quite early on that you can direct towards trying to meet that goal uh so you know for example uh, we were chatting before we came on the podcast about some of the camera and recording equipment that that we're using um that's that's like a good investment if you're going to make that a long-term thing so yeah i'd encourage people to figure out what what extra thing it is that you can do and then start start doing it and start putting yourself out there yeah i mean i agree and 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 and, um uh look i mean you know we are complicated beings and you know there's a lot of um intermingled meshing of of different identities and 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 um different psyches but i i think an identity that has utility is really important and and to identify with those things that that has uh beneficial outcomes in your life um is really important and we know what they are i mean it's 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 a matter of actually writing these out and, and sort of studying them so a lot of self uh, self-reflection and, and 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 sort of self-study really and uh i mean i realized from an early age that 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 you know the soul or or the psyche is, is something really important for the 
mm-hmm. the human being and i've always been interested in in sort of you know the metaphysical aspect of um of the human's existence and you know once once you start medical school that that sort of gets kicked out of uh gets kicked out of the park um and that was yeah, my and, biggest and that's not just a, yeah that's not just a medical school phenomenon i think the uh, mainstream culture in Britain is very, very anti talking about spirituality in any shape or form. Yeah. That started to soften a little because people are talking about mindfulness now, but they only ever talk about it in the context of, uh, all right, I need to do this thing called mindfulness so that I can de stress and give myself space to connect with well not really sure what but that enables me to continue and do the thing that's stressing me out for a little bit longer and that's that's about as far as the conversation goes yeah i mean there's 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 always a thing about evidence-based uh um knowledge so it mm -hmm. always has to be evidence-based and you know they use a um an empirical form of of evidence and as we all know there's lots of things that are not empirical and are in that sort of conscious space so to speak and you know consciousness is still a uh, a debatable phenomenon so um uh, you know it's all up for grabs mm-hmm. really um it's it's interesting because when i think about this thing about um evidence-based medicine which i totally uh, believe in i think it's really well, we important. have to say that <laughs> well no but uh, you know it's not just about paying lip service to it like evidence-based medicine is really important but you also have to ask the question well, how much evidence is practical to develop yeah. for example um trisha greenhall who's a professor of public health she often gives the the example well there's not been a randomized control trial of parachutes sa- uh, saving people from jumping out of planes because it'd be totally unethical to do that trial because we've got a pretty good idea that if you jump out of an airplane with that parachute, you're going to die. That doesn't mean that you need the randomized control trial to say that. That just means that there, there's a different uh, bar. There's a different uh, burden of proof. There's a different level of evidence that you need to make that argument. So when we talk about evidence-based healthcare um, and when we're talking about mindfulness, we need to really say, well, how much evidence is practical uh, for the question that we have. And, you know, I think if you're thinking about yourself as an individual and your sense of purpose, then, you know, it matters less whether a trial has, you try this out and see if you make a change and that makes a big difference to your life then, uh, you know, subjectively, then you're obviously going to keep doing that, aren't you? Yeah. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I lost a bit of the connection there. Um, yeah, I mean, having, having recently finished uh, medical school, I mean, how much did evidence-based medicine... I mean, how much of that was sort of part of the curriculum and sort of part of, uh, you know, the teaching process? Uh, yeah, I, I think they, it's something that was referenced a lot. And sometimes that they would talk about the levels of evidence. So you have class uh, 1A, um, you know, 2A, 2B, uh, and different kinds of, kinds of evidence. And when you have guidelines, those um, 
those frameworks are kind of matched to the recommendations. So you can say this recommendation, this guideline is based on this kind of evidence. But I don't think we went deeper into the um, deeper into the whole philosophy of of evidence based medicine. Of well, what are the limits of getting evidence? What kind of trials just don't get funded or aren't practical? What other uh, forms of of um, scientific inquiry can we use that might make a practical difference and not require as many resources? Uh, what can we do with this data that we routinely collect uh, in terms of statistical analysis? Those questions weren't really asked. It was very much just formulaic. Oh, this guidance is based on this recommendation. That means it's good. Uh, and that's that's dogma. That's dogmatic thinking. It's It doesn't in, encourage people to challenge actually in this paper what were the weaknesses of it i think that's how evidence-based medicine should be taught yeah i mean a cut cut coming from my experience of of being in healthcare for for over 20 years um i know the guidelines and sometimes you go beyond the guidelines because it, it it's not relevant for the patient that's yeah. in front of you um and it boils down to your own clinical judgment and your justification for the way that you treat patients. And yeah, uh, um, evidence-based medicine's actually politically driven, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you can and, see and why. You, so yeah, um, I mean it's very, I mean it's very, um, it's very costly, um, and the industry is massive. The industry is absolutely massive. And every time um, I see a particular representative of a um, uh, of a medical corporation talking about different evidences, you know, using, um, you know, the well-known structures of, of evidence-based medicine, I know it doesn't apply to me because I've developed this intuition. I've developed this ability to know what's relevant according to my experience for my patient. And I know that there is a sort of an underlying uh, hidden agenda coming from the other party. Yeah. Um, I, I would disagree I mean, you with know, you slightly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, t- tell me what you think of this, but um, you know, I, I do think there is a logic underpinning, um, you know, what, uh, what you're meaning by evidence based medicine being politically motivated. And because I think that, that there have been scandals where people haven't followed guidance that they probably should have, and that has led to unnecessary loss of life. So I can see that if you're working in the government and you're having reports piling up on your desk, which the media might uh, attack you for and uh, assign responsibility for you to failing to do something about it, it becomes very easy for them to say, well, we're just going to make this guidance, we're going to base it on this evidence. Um, you know, the politicians saying, oh, yeah, we're following the science. And that's all they have to do to deflect responsibility from them. So I think it's good to follow guidance where it's there. But, yeah, where it doesn't apply or where the patient in front of you is in a particular situation that the guidance it doesn't really apply to, then, yes, we absolutely need to be able to recognize those situations and use our judgment uh, to do that. Um, but I think we should also be thinking about, well, actually, can we get evidence that this, that what I'm doing works? Because 
if you're if what you're doing does work there should be some evidence that you can collect that will convince other people that it's a good idea yeah so no, yeah, i mean I'm i agree not, with I'm, you i mean yeah. i agree with you when 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 i say evidence-based medicine is political in the sense that it uh, does it to benefit as many people um within a society so you know that's my definition of politics it it, it, mm. it, it sort of convey that that sort of overarching wisdom um in order to benefit uh, the majority of society rather than you know some 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 sinister um activity uh you know uh, for the purpose of control and and um uh an acquisition of power um and rightly so if if you've got an alternative way of of uh, treating patients then it's definitely worth collecting the empirical evidence and and presenting it and uh, putting it forward amongst um, your peers so um yeah i mean i you know i agree on both uh, accounts um but as a clinician it's it's difficult particularly if you're if you're not part of a major institution and you don't have the financial means and Mm. um unfortunately i think it, it, it it's gone a bit too far down the financial um sort of driven industry um and, and not everyone's in that position of of um financial privilege um it's, it's definitely something we need to talk more about about just how much time and research gets spent trying to apply for funding and yeah. the incentives yeah. that come with that yeah uh, i mean if they can be sort of specialist or, or sort of people who really love you know finding innovative ways of of you know reducing costs and and uh you know increasing uh, efficiencies and in, in um in conducting these studies so that you know it can benefit uh um, a lot of us but um i mean the other issue is 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 that we should be able to have these debates and have these conversations about about serious health you know public health uh, issues you know rather than just shutting it down and sort of mm-hmm. um you know calling it um fake news or um um being threatened with uh, sanctions and and you know professional i mean how how do you think we get to that where these things actually are openly talked about because i'm imagining that you probably agree with me and that there isn't much open discussion at the moment and definitely not discussion that actually influences what happens at a policy level i mean i don't know much about policy level because i'm not involved in that but sort of on a local level i think it's okay so locally i you know I, i i do have um a greater say in sort of how i run things and and you know how i treat um my patients in the different pathways um but on a larger level you know there's um there needs to be a political will at the end of the day isn't it mm. you know that the the that these different opposing ideas um have a place and have a space for them to uh sit down and keep debating about it and um you know keep having that dialogue um you know keeping the channels open so what are the discussions that are important to you, Haidar? What what do you think we should be focusing on? Um, in terms of health, I think um, sort of psychological well-being, I think that's really important. You know, making it more of a mainstay in in how we treat patients. So rather than just concentrating on you know, the physical aspect um, of the patient and their biochemical aspect, 
you know, also talking about their psychological well-being and sort of, you know, making it, you know, part of the whole holistic package of dealing mm. with your patient. Um, unfortunately, in this day and age of, you know, quick clicks and, you know, uh, um, what what's the word, uh, clickbaits and all that kind of stuff, it, it's, it's sort mm. of difficult because you we're sort of trained to look at this blood test equals this medication and this level equals you know this uh, particular clinical pathway um and also everything is getting streamlined um so so i think so it's going the other the, way really the human so there's something about the, the effect uh you know on clinicians as as people of you know all of this um kind of algorithmic thinking uh is that kind of uh that seems to be the sense that i get from speaking to you but also speaking to a lot of my you know other colleagues they, they don't quite like being a cog in a wheel and the effect that that has on them they want to have discussions about that yeah i think so but you know that's my personal view because because i've always been interested in these mm. sort of you know the deeper aspects of of uh human being and also human well-being and i think it's more than mm. you know just these mechanistic and sort of algorithmic pathways and i mean even now that they're doing apps to deal with people's psychological well-being oh have you had your 10 minutes of meditation have you had your 10 minutes of uh, taking your um you know bare feet on onto the grass and it's like what the fuck Uh, i mean we're not that stupid you know and then and then they're bringing this kind of well-being apps into the workplace you know to make sure that that your manager keeps an eye on you and you know you're doing your 10 minutes of barefoot walking outside um yeah outside in the artificial grass that the company's made for you i don't think you need to be a scientist (laughs) sorry i interrupted you yeah, I was, I was I going to say, you know, know, like you don't need to be a scientist to know that those things aren't aren't going to make a big difference. You know, if you're not addressing the reasons why people feel that way, having an app is not going to make a huge impact. Uh, and you kind of reminded me of something else that I, I was going to say earlier when you were talking about um, that kind of um, the psychological well-being and how do clinicians actually get in get in touch with that and i know that i in my own experience the way i've dealt with that question is to try and read more widely than uh, just the scientific uh, literature so reading the psychology literature has been really helpful to me in terms of understanding myself uh, through the big five personality model which does have an evidence base to it and you know you can do your big five personality questionnaire and you know get where you lie in terms of the population spread and then you go oh that's why I find that difficult so so I'm very very extroverted that's why I didn't have a very good time when I was doing my research post and I was just having to work on a spreadsheet in a room on my own okay that that gives me some clue about what I could do in future to address that and I've also been finding it very, we've been talking a lot about faith in this um, discussion, but uh, reading some of the scholarly literature from uh, Islamic thinkers. uh, So I'm reading a book by uh, Al-Ghazali, who lived in the year 1000, uh, uh, around the time of the uh, Second Crusade. And he was a totally eminent intellectual of his time. And he wrote lots of books about 
you're trying to find your purpose in life and about how you deal with the the stresses and the the different pressures that that might be on you that kind of uh, knock you away from finding that and i've been finding that incredibly useful having a window into a different culture often i think helps you solve some of the problems where you you can't find the answer to to that struggle that you're going through in your own culture that's why i think you know coming from a mixed race background has been really useful for me so i've got this window into this whole other civilization and i can go and read some somebody like al ghazali and go actually that's quite useful i'm going to i'm going to pinch that yeah i mean and and that's what it's about. You know, these are um, more profound questions, more deeper questions, which, you know, in essence, are more religious questions, you know, around purpose and around origin and, you know, around the, the whyness and the reasons for this existence. And, you know, the, the whole concept about consciousness and sort of self-awareness and self-consciousness. And, and as you know, you know, physicians of, of um, a few centuries ago, they were essentially polymaths. So, you know, they were versed in all, you know, all the different sciences and the arts and, and um, the philosophies of, of, of all the other ways of life. And, um, you know, having that being much more canonical than, I mean, you know, look, we all take a social history, don't, don't we? You know, that, mm-hmm. that's, that's part and parcel of the medical a history taking, you know, maybe there should be some kind of psychological history as well. Um, and, and maybe even some, some kind of, yeah, I mean, psychology is kind of soul, soul food. And, you know, um, maybe you should have a bit more soul food in our, uh, in our medical food as well. So maybe that's something I'd like to see a lot more. And, you know, whenever I sort of, open this so-called can of psychological worms with a you know with, with my patient we have a bit more of a an interesting talk and 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 when I say oh yes by the way you know you do have glaucoma and you know it's affecting <laughs> your vision and you know you've lost half of your peripheral vision it's it's maybe it's a bit easier I I, I mean I personally feel easier um and I'm you know I'm a reasonable empath and I can feel other people's emotions and um, they seem a bit easier as well. Um, and I think, you know, if the physician feels easier, the patient feels easier as well. You know, there, the, there is that kind of flow. I, I totally agree with yeah. I totally agree. Maybe I'm delusional. Yeah. I don't know, but, but, but probably not. Um, you know, I do feel easier when I can open up about, about these topics with my patients and, um, mm. But it I think it probably helps them too. Yeah, I mean, it's about human connections. And, you know, the studies show that, you know, particularly in palliative care, if you can connect with, 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 the, with the patient on a human level, on a conscious level, um, on, a, on a self-conscious level, then it does help the, um, you know, reducing the suffering. And, and um, I may be wrong. I don't know. But yeah, I think part, it helps. Part of the... Part of the the dogma that they teach at medical school um, these days, uh, you know, I say dogma, but I, I'm not too critical of it. Um, but it's this idea of the biopsychosocial model. So, yeah. um, a patient has a particular pathology. That's the scientific aspect of it. But there's the whole social and psychological impact, and you can't really understand the the illness of the patient without understanding those things. So, yeah, I think that taking a psychological history, it has infiltrated into the mainstream consciousness of the medical profession. 
uh, and I personally I found it really uh, helpful to know you know, the, a bit of how my patient is dealing with something to be able to know how to talk to them about it and how to encourage them through the next steps of what they're of what they're going to have to do, what their their journey is going to be. And I think if we don't do that as a profession, then we're we're being neglectful of those other aspects of health. Yeah, and yeah, we shouldn't and I, do that. And and you know, one of the things that that I regret sort of in in, in medical school is is actually um spending more time in the psychiatry sphere um because it had a you know a particular flavor to it or a a particular reputation that that wasn't very good um and that and that kind of put me on guard whereas if i was to do it again i'd definitely spend you know a lot more time uh in that sphere and you know over the last seven years now I've, i've spent a lot more time with with uh, psychiatrists and um, mm. psychologists and um, psychotherapists and, and psychoanalysts. And it's just so fun. And, and also on the same token is that they're spending a more, you know, more time with, with the biological doctors and the, uh, you know, uh, the organic doctors, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> so they're getting a more holistic approach as well, because, you know, they realize that the organic aspect of, uh, of disease is also relevant to them um, and their uh, wonderful world of, uh, of the unseen and the unconscious. Mm. But, but yeah, I mean, I was um, totally fascinated by the unconscious and mm. um, I spent a lot of time doing some hypnotherapy work and, you know, that, that was even more <laughs> fascinating. And then and I got interested in black magic, which was, which was pretty. Uh, That's pretty out there yeah it's nice it's nice and i'm in talks with a with a chap about doing a um doing a sort of a horror comic about about a horrific doctor who gets up to no good so that's the current oh, i really enjoyed my psychiatry placement i have to say oh wow well, um, you lucky yeah bugger. i i had um it was a couple of weeks i think in uh, Addenbrooke's and uh, which is in Cambridge and there's a, a, a one of the psychiatrists who was running the placement was called Dr Christmas and he was a Scottish guy and <laughs> I learned so much from him he was he was really really funny yeah. and just seeing him do a mental state examination you started to realize actually there's quite a lot of objective signs that people give off yeah. when they're depressed and mood or when their mood is elevated or when they're uh, experiencing psychosis and having those sorts of things that you've seen them before so you can pick up on them is incredibly useful in all walks of life um speaking to speaking to people yeah Yeah. i really enjoyed that definitely are you a are you a football fan so i I have to say I'm not. Um, I'm I'm disappointed to say that because my my dad uh, my dad is a massive football fan and we used to play uh, football in the park. Uh, you know that that was our favourite thing to do together. So um, you know he likes to watch uh, his uh, Egyptian clubs uh, as well as watching the Premier League. But it's not something I've I have to say that I've had much time for. But uh, you know going to the odd game here and there, like I definitely do enjoy that and I, I like watching the World Cup but that's where it kind of ends, I'm afraid. So who do you support in, in, in the World Cup? Is it Egypt or Scotland? Oh, well, you know, Scotland, you know, when we actually managed to get to the World Cup, 
yeah. And and um, you must be a fan of Mo Salah. Come on. Yeah, I mean he's he's done he's done quite a lot for Egypt for you know representing Muslims as well, and obviously for Liverpool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I I was a big Liverpool fan back in back in the eighties, early eighties, um, and then uh, Alex Ferguson came along, you know that that wonderful Scottish man, and then that's when my depression started, literally. Mm. You know, <laughs> Liverpool went down the pan, and Man you went up, uh, yeah, up in the stars. And do you still support Liverpool? No, no, no. I, you know, luckily I started medical school um, uh, just at the start of the 90s. And that was my excuse for not, you know, for. Yeah, I mean, I stopped enjoying myself, I guess. It was like, oh, yes, that's it. Purpose. You got to do all this stuff and get back home and help all the people. And, you know, mm. the start of the end, really. Um, I think this whole um, domain of sports psychology is also really interesting. Like uh, yeah. these players are at the absolute top of their game. They have to be so driven, so psychologically uh, feeling their own purpose. I mean, what does Mohamed Salah do if you know he feels a bit down one day? Uh, that whole side of things. How do you manage the players' psychology? Finding that really, yeah. really interesting. And and someone like Alex Ferguson that managed to. I mean, he's just such a good strategic thinker and and a good manager, and really brought the team with him. You know, how, what is it about him that enabled that to happen? Yeah. That's another question that I find really interesting. I don't know, you know, what what do you think about that? Well, I mean, for 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 me, I, I remember just before operating, and 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 um, I remember I was in Iraq, and I had to operate on one of the uh, the father of the Ayatollah uh, at the time. Uh, so you can imagine yeah, the so the of- pressure's on as soon as someone <laughs> says Ayatollah yeah your neck is literally on the line um, you just have a routine you, you, you know you have many micro routines that, that you put in place in order to you to get into the zone and really focus and, and, and that was it you know emotion went out the window um, future disasters went out the window previous disasters went out the window it's just literally right this is what I've got to do a b c and d focus disasters did happen at the time I remember I was operating on um, on the father uh, of the idol and then the electricity switched off as it does in Iraq <laughs> so you know I had the instruments inside his eyes um, and then the uh, but you can't yeah. see anything presumably yeah, everything went dark. Um, and then it takes about 20 seconds for the local generator to sort of kick in, you know, the, the hospital uh, generator to kick in. And, and you're you know, trying to make sure that you've not moved in those 20 seconds. Well, you've got to take the instruments out. You've got to take the instruments out. And um, you just essentially pray. And then it comes on and you look down and, yeah, you just got to cross your fingers and, 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 and hopefully it's not an absolute disaster. And luckily it wasn't. Um, his son did come in, not not the Ayatollah, but but his brother. Um, he did come in and you know made sure uh, you know I was still there and carrying. His on eyes and... were fine, I guess. Thank then. God. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Yeah, his eyes were fine. He did really well. Um, yeah, it was surreal. It was it was really surreal. And uh, looking back, I'd never do that ever again. <laughs> <Sort of. laughs> but I think, you know, when you're young, you, you know, you do some crazy stuff. 
I'd, I'd be interested, you know, where did they get back in touch with you afterwards? Did they did they thank you? What what exactly well, does an Ayatollah do after a a, a sight saving surgery? Well, it's sort of part and parcel of the faith, and you know, you're sort of you know another minion in the uh, in the hierarchy. So yeah, I mean, I did a task and I did a an operation, and that was it. But you know, I guess it's there in history. You know, so whenever I do go back occasionally, they say, oh, yes, Dr. Al-Hakim. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you don't think about these things at the time. You just think about, right, I'm going to stay here in the moment. I've got my routines. If this complication, I do this. If, if this complication happens. So, you know, you, you, you sort of just get yourself um, in the present. And I think that's what they do, you know, as yeah. as professional. I mean, you know, we look at them and we're in awe of them. And the same with our patients. They, they look at us in awe of us, um, mm-hmm. you know, for what we do. But but really, we've developed so many small micro routines that we just get into the flow. We stay in the present. We do the thing and we leave. Um, I'd have been the total opposite of you. I would have been so excited and I'd be thinking, right, it'll be really churlish of them if they don't invite me for Eid after, after doing this. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think... Um, yeah, I mean, I've always been involved in that kind of sphere and it was sort of part and parcel of um of i mean i don't want to say the brainwashing sort of uh life but you know we're all programmed and you know the brain picks certain things and then eventually we have to drop them and you know well we don't drop them we just upgrade them and i think we've, you know, yeah. we've got to keep upgrading our software into into more so, i mean your, your faith is obviously something that's really important to you Haidar, and I, I i have to ask this question because you kind of hinted at it a, a, a couple of times but I, i'd be interested to know where you are with the whole religion thing now you said it's been a bit of a journey so you know where, where are you at in terms of your thinking on that now well i mean i've realized that it's better to be within a structure than outside of it um whereas before it was no you know i'm i'm, I'm going to do my own thing so yeah, I mean, I consider myself, you know, within the uh, structure of, of, of Islam, and I know the Shia ideology very well. Um, so, yeah, that's where I am. Um, but I'm willing to um, learn from from other ways of life and other faiths and um, other ways of being. Um, because I know I don't want to get too rigid and, and mm-hmm. I, I was probably too rigid before. I'm sure I'm still rigid now. You know, I'm not rigid at the moment, but, you know, I'm sure, uh, there are, you know, I'm still rigid in my ways and certain things and I'm willing yeah. to keep learning and um, I'm looking forward to new realisations. I mean, that's a very wishy-washy answer. I know. <laughs> but, I wasn't going to say anything. I was just going to yeah. let you speak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a wishy-washy <laughs> answer, but, you know, I, I prefer to be wishy-washy rather than be quite concrete. Um, but you know, cataract operations, glaucoma operations, glaucoma management, it's good to have some structure to start mm-hmm. you off, but then I yeah. think you know, being wishy washy after that is, is necessary for our uh individual patients and also our, our personal uh, individual journeys. And, and where are you headed in terms of like your clinical practice? I'm just thinking, uh, because uh, we've not really explored that. I know your listeners will know what it is you do. I'm just thinking about my listeners too. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, 
you know, I work within a, um, an ophthalmology service where we treat NHS patients. Um, and, you know, I've got a senior leadership role there as well. Um, that's going fine. Um, but I'm quite interested in the psychological aspect. So I do psychotherapy as well. Um, I mean, psychoanalysis as well. I mean, I don't have that distinction. It's just helping people psychologically and helping their psychological well-being. Um, and I've started and, I, and, I, and I'm starting an online sort of private clinic as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, just lots of bits and pieces. And I've been doing the podcast for, you know, since 2018. Are you enjoying it as much as I am? Podcast. It depends on the uh, on the guest. You know, some yeah. guests, <laughs> so, some guests are, are a bit of a struggle. You just got to sit there and sort of go through the motions. Um, I might, yes, definitely enjoy. It. Oh, yes, yes, definitely, because it's an opportunity to actually to speak to people and and learn from them. So you know, it's a real, mm. you know, it's really fun. Sometimes I like to be a lot more like myself, which is quite hell raising. Um, but I've realized that, you know, you are in a position of um, of authority and some people do get upset when you start breaking down that that perceived position of authority. You know, it it, it does give them a lot of dissonance, cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. So I, I think podcasting has been absolutely fabulous. The, the idea that, you know, two people can have a conversation now and anybody can listen to it and benefit from it is, is yeah. absolutely fantastic. I, I love speaking to people. I love getting into, you know, the, the nitty gritty of oh, why, you know, why does somebody see the world this way instead of yeah. the way I see it? Uh, just getting the chance to delve into that and understand it a bit better. It's, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, it's a great opportunity and, and, you know, whereas before you'd have a really interesting conversation uh, but no one would listen to it. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, this time people can, th- can think, shit, that, that, that was really good. And, or, or, or maybe you thought you had a shit conversation and people say, oh, actually, it was quite good. And, and also the benefit of this is you can go back and, and, and listen again and sort of learn new things and, and have new insights um, into topics that you thought, you know, you knew about. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's amazing, and also it's it's sort of here to stay for another, whatever, million years, or you know however long we stay on this planet for. However long we keep the power on, I think the power is always there. I mean, if the sun's there, uh, the power is there. So uh, the power's around, and um, <laughs> you know we're constantly striving for something better. You know that's a great thing about human beings. So. You know, there's this constant um, uh, movement towards uh, growth and betterment. Um, and I think that's the overlying sense uh, that most human beings have. And, you know, that's, that's the thing that wins most of the time. So, um, you know, maybe may we win more and more. Well, I'll say amen to that, as they say in, uh, in the Deep South. Well, thank you so much, Zach. It's been a great pleasure and it's been an interesting kind of double podcast take. And um, 
Let's yeah, well, I've, go from I've very much enjoyed it. And uh, it's been nice to get to uh, sort of uh, be the guest rather than the host, uh, at least for a while. <laughs> well, I mean, next time what, what, what we can do is, is we can do a proper, like, kind of, you know, one... Because you kind of mixed it today. We kind of mixed it today. It's an um, interesting experiment. I, I think it's worked quite well. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think we have had a really interesting discussion. Be more than yeah. happy to come back some other time and do it again. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Zach. It's been great. All the best.